Hello and welcome to Legendary Leaders, the podcast. My name is Kathleen Merkel and I'm the host of the show. And together with a wide range of legendary leaders themselves and experts in the field of self-leadership, we are going to explore concepts and ideas that show you how you can move past your fears, negative self-talk and constant doubts in order to encourage you to becoming a legendary leader yourself with far more natural impact, influence and inspiration. So are you ready for it? Well, welcome once again to Legendary Leaders, the podcast. Have you ever wondered how you can build a team, an organization, a business that truly cares for other people? And it's not just an empty phrase, a slogan. You truly care. And each and every individual working with you, for you, as a part of that business, know that, feel that, sense that, and are therefore truly committed to giving their best? Have you ever wondered how you demonstrate empathy and how you access your empathy and how you show towards others? Well, these are just a couple of the questions that we are going to be discussing in today's episode with Dr. Kristen Donnelly. And man, she is a force of nature. She is an award-winning four-time TEDx speaker, international empathy educator and researcher with two decades of experience in helping people understand the beauty and difference and the power of inclusivity. And now I'm talking to someone who highlights on multiple occasions during the recording that she's scratching the 40s. And we are talking about two decades of experience in that space. Wow. She is one of the good doctors of Abbey Research, CEO of their parent company, a co-founder of the Community Research Institute, and an unapologetic nerd for stories of change. And today we are meeting Kristen actually on her sofa, feeling pretty unwell, but still deciding to dial into this call. Now, that's, this brings up the first question, and that question relates to one of um, Kristen's talks, actually, that is connected to self-care. What does self-care mean to her? And how does she live and embrace self-care? What has been that tough ride that made her realize what self-care truly is? And spoiler alert here for all of you who said, I care for myself. I look after myself. I have my regular nail appointments. I get some massages in from time to time and so on and so forth. Well, we go far beyond that and go and dive into the mindset of self-care and how we can prioritize us as well as others and bring both parties together, listening to our body, listening to our needs in order to be the best for others as well. And last but not least, we are going to talk about the journey of Kristen, how she became a leader or co-leader of the business they are leading now. She leads it together with her brother. What are some of those challenges? What are some of the opportunities? How do they manage to have a real adult-to-adult -adult approach when it comes to their team members? And a lot of leaders step very quickly into parent-child position. She does that very differently. And that with radical candor, with a lot of openness, with a sense of humor that's just brilliant. So enjoy this episode. And I speak to you again literally in a few seconds. Oh, hello and welcome. I have Dr. Kristen Donnelly here with me and I'm delighted. Hello. Hello. How are you feeling today? I am doing just grand. Yourself? Yeah, um, in, in the Irish way, I would say I'm grand too. <laughs> Not 100%, <laughs> but I'm all right. Getting my yeah. way ready for my Ireland trip. You may oh, be nice. delighted to hear. 
That's fantastic. I'm drinking out of my Northern Ireland Starbucks mug right now. Here we go. We have one thing in common and many, many other topics I'm pretty sure that we are going to discover here together. Indeed. Indeed. I want to highlight, though, to the audience that you are joining us here today, not feeling 100% at your best. And I really appreciate that. But I'm also calling it out. I offered her to reschedule. But she wanted to stay here and share all her wise words, insights and expertise and humility with you here on the show. Oh, gracious. You know, you just have those seasons in life where your body doesn't really cooperate with you. And like your body needs you to slow down and stop. And your brain's like, but I have this to-do list. Mm. And that's where I'm at right now. So totally fine. Brain is sharp. Body is just like, you need to be on a couch. You really do not need to be at a desk. So I am on a couch attempting to listen to my body. I love that you say attempting to listen to my body. (laughs) Yeah, we're frequently in a fight. We're frequently in a fight, but I'm working on it. So usually I would start these podcasts talking about your background, your stories, um, and you have a few stories to tell. Um, I do. And you do that frequently as well, but more about that in a moment. But you have literally given me a springboard into the topic of self-care. Here we go. Uh, you, I have indeed. Here, I set it up for you. <laughs> right on the tee, just knock it off. Yeah. So one of your many talks, and they are always really interesting talks as well, that I watched was on self-care. And you started along the lines of, you know, it's not about a nail appointment and the regular massage. It is connected to completely different topics, decisions we make in our lives. Here you are on your sofa, decision number one you made, but still battling with your body and still having a few arguments. So so, so what does self-care truly mean to you? It's a great question. So I, a bunch of years ago, I realized, and it's actually funny that we talked about Ireland because Ireland's really what taught me this, is that I was so exhausted entirely because of external factors on me. So I moved to Belfast the first time when I was 22, which is like the perfect time to figure out that you don't actually know what you're doing. Like you're at that cusp of like, oh, everything I thought about my life is not true. So let's go. And when I, I'm a millennial and we kind of coined the term quarter life crisis. So there's a lot of like us in our early and mid twenties that were like, well, crap, I am never going to pay off my student loans. I'm never going to get a job uh, doing what I think I love. Uh, This is going to be awkward. Okay. So I was a little bit in that space when I moved to Northern Ireland the first time. And I realized really quickly that my definition of being a good human meant being really productive and always available in case someone needed me. And that that's not actually the only definition. It might not even be a healthy definition. And so that was, I was 22, I'm scratching 40 now. And so for the last 18 odd years, I've been thinking about this and researching this. And where did I get this idea that in order to be a good person, I had to be really productive? Where did that come from? So like, obviously some of it came from my parents, some of it came from society, but like it didn't really feel right. So I started digging and I realized in the United States, I've, I've been an American, you know, since the womb, it comes from our founding as uh, on puritanical theology, where literally they said like the three tenets of the Puritans, three of the tenets of the Puritans, I should say, are that you're only a good person if you work really hard. Working hard means you do it all alone except for barn raising. Barn raising was an acceptable communal activity. 
everything else you did by yourself, like farming and raising of cattle and et cetera, et cetera. And then the third one was that you got to rest when you were dead. Nice. And when I really started to sit there and think about it, I was like, oh, so this is where it comes from. And then burnout became a massive topic, right? Self-care has been a massive topic for a long time. And I jokingly call it the self-care industrial complex. In our book, we call it the wellness industrial complex. But I started getting really frustrated that everything was, I was really tired and I didn't know how to stop. And all of the magazine articles and even therapists were just like, well, just be less stressed. And I was like, fantastic. Do you have a to-do list for that? Like, Mm -hmm. thanks so much for your help. And then everything that some, a BuzzFeed listicle told me to try didn't work for me. Like I can't, I, I can't do soul cycle. My, my knees are kind of terrible. I don't like yoga. It didn't really work for me. And so I just kept thinking like, okay, well, none of the things that provide self-care work for me. So obviously the problem is me and I am just destined to be burned out. This is like my sacrifice for the good of humankind. I don't even know what I really thought. But I was like, okay, well, I'm always going to be burned out, done. And then about two years ago, I was in the middle of my spate of TED Talks. I, I got the it's TEDx Talks. I got the chance to give four of them in the span of eight months, which I don't recommend. Um, and in between my third and my fourth, I started getting a really massive case of laryngitis. And no matter what we did, it kept getting worse. And I had a TEDx talk to give, and it was it's on video. It's there. Everyone who watches it tells me they can't tell. I hear my voice cracking. And like it was pre-recorded because it was during the Omicron surge here in the Northeast of the United States. And I, all I remember is how many times we had to stop recording because my voice just literally gave out. And I had to sit there for a half an hour and drink tea and get ready for it to go back to do three more sentences before it gave out. Like that... 18 minute Ted talk. It took us eight hours to film it because my voice just kept giving out. And so my very, very wise business partner and best friend was like, maybe, maybe we should listen to your body. Like maybe you should stop doing as much as you're doing. And I was like, well, I can't really stop. Like, here's all the reasons I have to stop. And for all of 2022, I justified it. I was like, oh, here's all the things I have to do. I have a company to build. I have another one to run. I've got, you know, a marriage to, to maintain. I've got friends to see. And then it, last Christmas, I got double walking pneumonia. Which must have hit you, literally knocked you oh, out. Oh, like a ton of bricks. And I was on my sofa for four weeks. It is the longest I've taken off of work ever. Like since I was 14 and started working. That's the longest I've taken off of work. And I kept saying like, oh, well, I can go to work today. I can go to work. And finally, my doctor, who's a good family friend and knows my brain, which is like, Kristen, you are not going back to work until after the new year. Like you are very, very sick and you need to stop. And obviously that was incredibly emotional for me. I laid there sitting, thinking what a failure I was, how pathetic this was, what is wrong with me that I can't, I can't power through this. And on about week four, I said all these things out loud to, again, my best friend. And she was like, yeah. Um, it's crazy how stopping is what you're supposed to do. You know what? I know somebody who gave a really good talk on that. And then the jerk sent me a talk <laughs> I had given in November on the puritanical foundations of burnout in the United States. And I think up until la- up until December, it was all very academic. 
Like it was all very, it was a lot more in my brain. Like, Oh, I know I'm burned out. Like, I know I have to take these medicines. Here are some practices that work for me. But like what really happened was in December, I had to excavate everything I thought about my work, my personal work. I had to sit there as I watched things just fall off the to-do list that weren't going to get done every single time. Cause we're hitting the end of the year. Like the books were going to close. There's only so much I could get done. And I'm sitting there being like, okay, was that actually important? Was I just doing that because we've been doing it forever? Or do I actually, does this need to be accomplished for the goal and the vision that we have? And I reevaluated everything. And I realized deeply and truly the thing I'd been preaching for years, Mm -hmm. which is that your body says you need to stop. And capitalism says you need to die. And at a certain level, you can only pick one. So the last, you know, you and I are talking, it's the 3rd of May. So the last five months has been a lot of introspection. And in my mind, it's almost like I'm, I'm digging out a wound of who I, of, of this person I was taught I had to be. Do I still tie my emotional self-worth up into being productive? Absolutely. Do I, I'm sitting here taking a sick day and I spent the first five hours of it feeling very guilty. Like this is a journey. It also helps that we're writing a book on self-care and burnout right now. So I'm having to do a lot of that. It's the longest answer to your question in the history of the world. But I wanted to give that setup to say what self-care means to me is whatever makes me happy on any given day. Because everything else I tried only makes me feel guiltier. So whatever brings me joy on that day, whatever I listen to my body and I can as much as I can. And my body's like, you need to take a walk today. I'm like, cool. I need to move my body. Let's go take a walk. You know what you really need tonight? You need to sit on the couch and play Stardew Valley. Awesome. Then that's what we're going to do. And I don't have a program. I don't have a routine because my life changes every single day. You are a different person every day. And so I am unlearning all of my old patterns of taking care of myself. And all those old patterns were pretending that I was taking care of myself and not at all taking care of myself. And I'm unlearning all of those things and relearning these new things where like, I don't, I was having a terrible brain day. Um, Obviously, like, as I mentioned, my mental health is really tied up in a lot of this. So it's been a really interesting couple of months. So I was having a really bad brain day the other day. And I said to Aaron, I was like, well, I've got this dinner to go to tonight and I really need to go. And she just got really quiet for a few minutes. And I was like, okay, do I really need to go? She was like, I'm just going to let you work this out on your own. Like she just sat there on Zoom and stared at me. I was like, I don't need to go. I'm allowed to cancel. She's like, you are. Cancel the dinner. It's not worth your exhaustion. Yeah. But then we know like yesterday we had five sales calls. I was exhausted. I was overwhelmed. I got to show up for those five sales calls. But I didn't need to show up for the dinner after work with a friend that let me easily reschedule. And so that to me is self-care and boundary setting. It's the dance every day of knowing there are times that you do have to push through and you've got to show up when you don't want to, because that's life. But that is maybe 10% of the time. And I used to think it was 100% of the time. And so the changing routine every day of what do I need today? Because if I take care of what I need for myself today, then A, I model that for other people. 
And B, part of what I always need is reconnection with other people. Mm -hmm. So like self-care is not fundamentally selfish, even though we think it is, Mm -hmm. because it's always connected to other people. It's always connected to who am I in this relationship? How can I be this? How can I be this employer or this employee? How can I do this? We are innately interconnected with each other. Yeah, 100%. So self and other care are the exact same thing. So you can't mind anybody else's joy. I'm not in charge of my husband's joy. I tried for several years and that got awkward. I'm only in charge of mine. And so you control what you can control and then you move on. So again, longest answer in the history of the world. But I think that's as complete and honest as I can be right now. It it resonates so strongly with me. Actually, in the last two weeks, I spoke to two individuals about similar situations but those two individuals don't know each other and I give you just one example without obviously mentioning names but one individual said I was knocked out for multiple uh, days because of um, gastritis and real bad tummy bug basically that he caught from his kid and for everybody here without sharing too much information who's ever had it it's not pleasant no. And you kind of lie on the couch and you just want to be somewhere else in a place where Correct. you don't feel all of this. Yes. And, and anyway, uh, he decided to take out a couple of calls of his work schedule, but most of them he kept in a diary because it will be far too hectic to reschedule all of them. However, then we we talked about health overall and well-being and what his body tells him. And my, he said, my body tells me I need to move more. I'm literally stuck to my chair and I'm getting heavy and sluggish and lacking energy and I'm getting more frustrated and has an impact on the world around me. Surprise, yeah. surprise. And we talked about basically the phenomenon and that's not, he's not the only one who shares that, to sacrifice one's own health, to take on all of these calls and making sure other people are served. When it is about us, our well-being designs our body literally rub into our face that the body needs something. We say, that I can wait. Yeah, it's funny when I do this, I totally agree. When I do this talk and I say, and I get to the part where I say, well, the Puritans taught that you can sleep when you're dead. I've given this talk, I don't know, seven to 10 times in the last three months in a couple different countries. And every single time I say that the room like viscerally reacts, it's like, they've never connected the dots as to where that all came from. And we're the only country that was entirely founded by the Puritans and then didn't have another like belief system on top of it. And Puritan theology feeds really well into capitalism. And so it just kind of went, but like, we are not the only ones to suffer from this nonsense now like for sure. And some of it is because as America, we've exported it everywhere. The American dream is to be burned out. And that's why. Um, And some of it is because late stage capitalism demands more and more and more of our bodies in order to stay present. I don't even know what word I'm trying to find. But everywhere I go in the world, I meet people who one on one category completely understand that you have to take care of yourself or you can't take care of anybody else. And most of those folks I find, I find them outside of North America. And then I always find everywhere, more in North America, but I still find them everywhere. People that believe it is their responsibility to work themselves into the ground for the sake of other people. The proportions just change depending on the culture you're in. Mm -hmm. But like, I don't know. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Encanto Mm -hmm. that was just out in uh, last year. 
two years ago, two years ago, but it's about, it's about family and a whole lot of other things, but the older sister in it sings this whole song about how she's not sure if she's worth anything, if she can't be of service to other people. And Disney thought that the other sister, the one who like grows flowers and is super pretty was the one all the little girls were going to want the dolls of. They all wanted Louisa. They all wanted the one who felt completely pressured to be perfect and of service. And when I talk to friends who watch that movie and a lot of us love it, we all identify with Louisa. We all, there's a line, it's like, I can't help but think if I'm worthless, if I can't be of service. And we talk about how like, it felt like somebody was twisting our insides. Like, Mm -hmm. how did someone make a a song out of my journal entries? Like, that feels rude. Um, I keep running into stories like that. Yeah. And for a long time, I thought that was a badge of honor. We, we say when somebody asks how you are and we answer, oh, I'm so busy. We expect the other person to translate that into, I am really important. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that it probably means you don't know how to manage your own schedule and you're really terrified of delegation. And there are certainly seasons of our lives where things are out of our control and we are really busy. And that is truth. There's always a better way to answer that question. You don't need to know that I'm really busy. When you ask me how I am, it doesn't matter to this conversation. So I always say different things now, you know, like, oh, I'm peachy. I'm living the dream. I'm, you know, scrum trilescent. Like I'm doing just fine today. How are you? If I recited my to-do list and my schedule for the next month, it would make most people cry because that's Mm -hmm. just how my life works. They don't need to know that. What they're asking is how I am in this exact moment. And what I'm trying to remind myself is when I get on a phone call or I'm in a conversation, the most important thing I can do is be present with that person. So in this moment, in this conversation, how am I? I'm great. I'm busy in 10 minutes, but right now I'm great. And trying to take it moment by moment by moment, because there's so little we can control. And so much of our busyness is caught up in pretending we can control other things. An assumption of mine coming back to the topic of worthiness is also to create some wealth. Mm -hmm. And I spoke actually to somebody today who about self-care who said, well, if I take time for myself and if I do the things that actually give me joy in this moment and nourish my soul and my body, I don't think I'm worth that. Yeah. But I create my worth once I step on my calls and I surf and I'm there and I don't give myself a break and all of this. Yeah. I feel that so hard for me. It's a challenge because I know my calling on this planet is to serve other people. I know I am here to make other people's lives easier, richer. I know I'm here for other people. I know this in my core. And so I would just fall back on that all the time when I was kind of in the beginning of this journey or through most of my 20s. I mean, I spent so much of my 20s trying to make people love me that I just exhausted myself, you know, trying to do that. But what I've had to learn is that being of service to people, A, is not a personality. Like your other things, your whole personality can't be that. Two, You need to let other people be of service to you as well. And three, being of service sometimes is modeling saying no. And being of service doesn't mean that you're a doormat. 
And there's a real tricky balance. And again, seasons by seasons, nothing in this world is permanent. Being a human is hard. None of us get out alive. But I think like my brother has, has a, one of my brother's best friends right now, their three-year-old daughter is having some significant health crises. And the daughter will be in and out of the hospital for the next two or three years, I think, with the, with the treatment plan that they have in place. And so obviously right now, their entire lives are about serving their daughter. That's it. There's a, probably a hundred people whose entire life is centered around making sure this girl survives this thing that she's been given, this tiny baby who's been handed just the worst deal of cards right now. But hopefully our prayer is in 10 years, their lives won't revolve around that. And it'll be a different season. It'll be a season where busy looks like soccer games and not doctor's appointments. Mm -hmm. Right now, they can't take a whole lot of time to rest. There's too many other things. A lot of their friends are making sure they go to therapy and like their friends are stepping in and taking care of them. But I think a lot about how those it's, you know, it's those two, those two humans, uh, her parents now is not the time to talk to them about healing. They're in the middle of it. They can't do it. The season right now is chaos. And it's driven by a lot of fear and a lot of strategy. The problem is a lot of us take what should be temporary circumstances and make them last our whole lives. And I really, knowing, knowing my brother's really good friend, he won't do that. He'll make sure to bring like play and joy and sarcasm and things back into their lives. But if they lived like this, once she gets out of the hospital, they'll burn themselves out. Because you have to accept the new seasons that come to you. And sometimes that means laying on a couch for four weeks and watching everything on Netflix that you've missed for the last three years. Yes. And sometimes that means rolling up your sleeves and making a casserole for your friend who just lost their dad. It's never a permanent state of being because you as a human change all the time. And so being a human, we say this all the time at Abbey Research, it's such hard work because you got to pay attention to yourself every day. But a lot of us exist on autopilot because it's easier and that's what our brain chemistry wants us to do. But to like actually like go beyond existing and to like live full and abundant and rich lives, you got to monitor yourself every day. And sometimes I have to take a break from that because it's really tiring. That's the key. And, and you just said what I was about to mention. A, I love that you call it seasons. You know, we can talk about change concepts and the faces you step in, but seasons, what? The wording can immediately change the sentiment around it. And you you highlighted exactly that point. It is damn hard because it requires you to actually notice yep. what you need in the moment, what's really important, what matters, and the people around you may need from you in this moment and then have this balancing act between yeah. those two things and probably as we are complex and there are multiple people involved others as well oh for sure and I remember when I was doing uh when I was in my social work program a huge part of the training was having us one of the classes I took it was like every morning we woke up and journaled what does this moment need from me does this moment need me to focus on me? Does this moment need me to focus on my client? Does this, what is, what is this moment need from me? And like that question has been asked a lot. It's part of the, the total football theory that the Dutch pioneered 
um, in the seventies and that Pep Guardiola uses at man, at man, uh, man city now. And there's a lot of other philosophies around it, but like, to me, that's what it comes down to being aware every moment as much as possible. Cause like it's damn exhausting, but like right now in this conversation, what the, this conversation needs for me is to be vulnerable and authentic and engaged in our conversation. When we get off the call, what the moment will need for me is probably a snack. And then later on tonight, I've got a pack for a trip I'm taking tomorrow. So the moment will need a lot of minor stress over if that pair of leggings I want to take was actually washed or if I have to do an emergency load of laundry tonight. <laughs> um, so it's, it's not every, like, you know, it's not every single second. It's more like what, as you're in the task, what does the task require of me? And then when you're, you know, when you're going to bed, what does that require of you? It probably requires washing your face and shutting off your phone and brushing your teeth and doing something that helps you wind down, whether that's, you know, spraying your pillow in lavender or meditating or reading a book or you're like me and you do your Duolingo lessons right before you go to bed. Like, why am I not surprised? <laughs> <laughs> it's the only time I remember to do them because I'm like laying down. I'm like, Oh, I need 10 minutes on Spanish. Um, but the rest of my, the rest of my day is ruled by like mental chaos. Um, but yeah, what do you need in this moment? What does the person in front of you need in this moment? And I think if we let ourselves are guided by that, we'll miss, we'll, we'll stop doing a lot of the missteps. Like when somebody comes to you and they're like, you know, my grandmother just died. If you ask yourself in the moment, what does your friend, like, what does this moment need? I'll tell you what it never needs is you to take the focus off that person and put it back on you. It never needs you looking at them and saying, I know just how you feel. And then telling your own story of personal grief. So if we ask ourselves, what does the moment need? It probably needs silence from you. It might need a hug. It might need the question. What do you need from me? Asking the friend that. How can I help? What do you need? Do you need a food? Do you need a snack? Like, what do you need from me here? But if we aren't intentional as we move through it, we'll just barrel through life like vengeful bumper cars and continue to hurt each other. But if we take 30 seconds and center ourselves in the moment that we're in and get curious about what is needed, I really think our existences will change. Mm -hmm. However, what I would love to say is that I'm very sorry about your loss. Yes. That's always a good place to start. That's a great thank you for. Yeah, I'm really right. sorry this happened. How can I help? What do you need? Yeah, I'm so sorry. Because quite often, this is, I think, a great example. People hearing about sad news from others step into the space of not quite sure how to deal with that, not connecting so with awkward. what's needed and it makes it yep. awkward. It's very awkward. And it's a lot of us have been taught to say, I know just how you feel because we've been taught that that's empathy. And it's not. No, It's not. I can go into the whole neurological thing. You can't actually know how somebody feels. All you're doing is projecting what you think they might feel. Like none of that is, and none of that is empathy. Empathy is a mental framework instead. But like really what it comes down to is that when you say, I know just how you feel, again, which I contend that it's not actually possible, at its core, you're also making this moment about you. 
when we've done research on people who have been in trauma and we ask them like what was helpful, what questions were helpful and what things weren't, overwhelmingly, the data is that when someone's in pain, they don't wanna hear about your pain. Overwhelmingly, they're not in a place to hear about it. They're not venting. They're not looking for commiseration. They're acknowledging that something really sucks right now. And all they wanna hear is that all they wanna experience is that they are seen, heard and understood. I'm so sorry that happened. That really sucks. What can I do? How can I help? And then I will say, because some of your listeners might be like, but I have this experience that could really help. It's the way you rephrase that. As I'm so sorry that happened. When my grandmother died, I felt really angry. I don't know if you're feeling that. Just let me know how I can help. I know when I experienced this thing, it's how I felt. But even that's not appropriate all the time. So it's just, just think about, I guess, you know, before you say that kind of stuff, because you're trying to fill silence. Don't. Silence is actually a whole lot holier than we ever give it credit for. It's one of the first things we teach speakers to do when we're training speakers is that instead of filling the sa- the space with random sounds uh, uh, like uh, that are called vocal stops, hold the silence. You can't find your word. Hold the silence. Not only will it make, if you're a speaker, your audience will lean in and like wonder what they're going to say next. But if you're in the moment with people that are grieving or are overwhelmed or don't really know which end is up anymore, what they sometimes just need is another person in the silence with them so that when they are ready to talk, when they are ready to cry, when they are ready to say, I can't talk about this anymore, can we talk about football? Someone's been in that silence with them. And then you can exit the silence together. So somebody tells you horrible news and you don't know what to say, start with, I'm sorry, and then hold the silence. Personally, find it really frustrating when I'm sharing something vulnerable and um, and now my voice is leaving me. Here we go. And (laughs) someone does make it about themselves, trying to be helpful. I I recognize the positive intent, but I often notice how I'm literally, how how my emotions Mm -hmm. are boiling up and paired with a bit of uh, inner resignation and of stopping myself and saying this, you know, it doesn't make any sense to share more. And then I close down and I try, I'm not perfect and I'm learning every day as well. But I'm trying to remind myself of those situations as well when I'm on the other side. Yep, same. And I'll catch myself doing it. I'm a classic, completely accidental one-upper where it's like, oh, that happened to you? Oh, this happened to me. Like, I just accidentally do that. And so my instinct is to be creating camaraderie. Hey, you're not alone in this. I've been through it. But I've done the research and I've, I've read the data and I've talked to people there is time for commiseration and camaraderie. It is very rarely like when we actually offer it. In the moment of vulnerability that somebody is giving you, I do the same thing, Kathleen, exact same thing. 
Because what when somebody start, starts making my pain about them, what my body does immediately is this person is safe. And then I graciously steer out of the conversation because they don't deserve any more of my pain. And I shut down really quickly and I and my brain goes, okay, not a safe person for this level of disclosure. And then I move on and do something else. And my, you know, none of us want to be a person that somebody moves on from like that. Yeah. But a lot of us are, and you are so right to draw out that it's the best of intentions. So instead of barreling on in with our intentions and no data, let's take a minute to look at what the research says, which is all people want is to be told that someone is very sorry that something sucks. And I love what you said there. I want to highlight that for everybody who's listening. How do I feel when the tables are reversed? What would I like to have done? Often that's an incredible, incredible guiding path. It's not foolproof though. It's not foolproof because Aaron and I talk about this a lot. What I need when I am really upset is somebody to be upset with me in the same direction. So like if I'm really upset with my, with my husband and I call Aaron and I am like, oh my God, da, 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 da. in that moment when I am like in a fervor, I don't want to hear how much my husband loves me and like how beautiful it is and like how great. I don't want any of that. I want Aaron to be mad at John with me for at least, I don't know, five minutes. <laughs> and then, and then we calm down and she's like, but man, he loves you. And I'm like, yeah, and I really love him too. And like, then we're fine. That's not what Aaron needs when Aaron's really upset. She, and, and she very rarely rants. I rant. I am the queen of ranting. And when something is ticking her off, she just wants me to look at her and be like, I'm real sorry. What do you need? So we've had to learn over the years of a deep covenantal, you know, platonic soulmate level friendship that I can't give her what I would want because it would, it's, it would, it would make it about me. And so I have to be really careful to think about what would I want? Obviously I want something different than what is happening. It's possible that she wants something different than what is happening. So when you don't know the, the solution to that equation, you stick with silence. It's rough though, man. Like humaning is just, <sighs> it's like next level nonsense. And it's so hard. And we, I make my living looking at crowds of people and saying, I know how hard this is. It's just it's about to so say. simple though. That's what's so annoying. 90% of the problems in your life on a day-to-day -day basis, not the big ones, the the non the day-to-day -day nonsense would largely be solved by things we were all taught in primary school. Are you sharing well? Did you express your emotions appropriately or did you throat punch someone today? You're obviously feeling a lot of very big feelings. Do you need a snack, a nap, or a hug? Most things you need help with. So ask for help when you need it. And for the love of God, take a nap every day. So much of our lives would be simpler if we followed those things. Adults overcomplicate a lot of things. Well, here, I need a 10-step program to do this. And there's a lot of brain chemistry. 
around why our brains do that. There's lots of, of neuro, neurological explanations as to why we do that. But fundamentally, your body and your brain generally know what you need every day. If your brain is completely out of whack and you need chemical intervention, then hopefully you're in a therapeutic relationship to know when your brain is lying to you and when it is being communicative. There's beautiful, beautiful therapists that help you figure that out. If your body doesn't behave the way you want it to behave, I have a chronic pain disorder. My body very rarely behaves the way I need it to behave. And what my body and my brain need some days are completely different things. My brain really needs to do things and get stuff done and my body needs to lay in bed. But if I choose one over the other without acknowledging the other one, it just means that they're at war. So I lay there and I say, it really sucks. I have so much to do today. And then I say, what needs to get done? Who do I call? Like, it's all that kind of process. But being a human is really, really challenging. The solutions to it are pretty simple. Be kind to yourself. The execution of everything I teach is nearly impossible, which is why I ask people to pay me to help them do it. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> the execution is where it gets complicated. The principle is so simple. Different people are different. The human in front of you is a human, no matter what you think about them. Everybody needs to sleep and eat and drink water. You're probably not drinking enough water because you are a cucumber with complicated emotions and you need a lot of water. Everyone needs people to hug. Humans are created to live in interconnected community. All of those things are facts. Figuring out what to do with them is the challenging part. Today's podcast is sponsored by Inner Professional Online Training Programs. With courses geared specifically for legendary leaders, Inner Professional provides an extraordinary catalog of leadership and professional development programs unlike any online training you've experienced before. Hone your conscious and authentic leadership skills with peer group, networking communities, direct engagement with life experts, and a wealth of compelling, easy to engage on-demand content. Learn more at kathleenmerkel.com slash innerprofessional. I wonder after everything you've just shared, where does it get lost? When when you and I spoke for the first time, I told you about uh, my little boy at home and, yep. and you have a niece and a nephew, right? A niece and a nephew, yep. Yeah. yep. And... You know, I see all of what you have just said on a day-to-day -day basis. And I can react to those needs accordingly. And I'm loving it, by the way, most of the times at least. But for us in adulthood, at some point, it gets covered, lost. Perhaps not lost, it is somewhere. We have to kind of uncover it again. And sometimes, if I speak about my own experience, we deliberately try to cover it up. I don't need hugs. I'm strong. Nah, no need for that. So, so how does that all happen? Slowly and then all at once. So I think one of the, something that we're really looking at right now in terms of like data and research is the different education systems in different countries and how they handle students' emotions um, and their personhood outside of test scores. 
because one of my current theories that we're playing with is that most schools are significantly more interested in compliance than they are with education, truly, if we really get down to the core of it. Because our society, the West in general, and honestly, a lot of Eastern cultures as well right now, are more interested in compliance than anything else. So there's that, there's that piece of it that we're taught from a very early age to do the same things at the same time as other people. And that different, we, I mean, this is one of the reasons children and teenagers like punish different because they're taught by the adults in their lives that sameness is what you want. Uniformity is what you want. I'm not sure that stuff like Montessori is the answer, by the way, this isn't like a pro free range education, education conversation. I'm just playing around with this. The other piece of it is that you've got this thing in your brain called the prefrontal cortex. Mm -hmm. And the prefrontal cortex's entire job is to keep you safe. That's it. Entire job. There's another thing called the amygdala. And that's also there to keep you safe. The amygdala is like the panic station. When the amygdala is triggered, it, it shuts down the logic of the prefrontal cortex. And it just like you just go into survival mode. The amygdala is what controls flight, fight, or freeze. In, I'm doing super general terms here. Often, to be safe means being the same as everyone around you. Physically safe, emotionally safe, economically safe. Safety, our brains think, is in never changing anything, never encountering difference, and just kind of plodding along and keeping everything calm. Worked really well when we were hunter-gatherers. And you did have to identify very quickly if that person wants to kill you or if that person's a member of your tribe. Super great for the first, I don't know, what, 9,000 years of human existence. Less great now. So we've got this culture that wants conformity and uniformity. Employees that just do what you say, really easy to make money off their labor. People who think for themselves, a lot harder to manage them. I think more joyful and more <laughs> wonderful, but it is more of a challenge. So you've got the thing, then you've got your brain that wants everything to stay the same forever. And then on top of it, even when we want to be different, we want to find people that are different with us. We want to find people that make us feel the same as a group around us. So I, I say this because, um, you know, er, my good friend, Will, he always says everybody's a nerd for something, which is so true. But everybody's got like pockets of they're a fan of something in that community that being a fan is part of their identity of something. So there's obviously lots of sports fans. There's lots of movie fans, TV show fans. I love Marvel, like older school Iron Man and Captain America and, and all of that. And I've made a lot of friends because I like that stuff. And so even when the rest of the world, like, I don't feel very same, I feel different a lot. My body's bigger than a lot of chairs I can fit in. So like, I mean, I love going to Ireland, but every cafe in that damn country is too small for me. Yeah. Every cafe in that on that damn island. 
you well, know, me too. I, sometimes, like I think they're all built for Lilliputians. I swear to you, like it's just guys, guys. Um, I'm a married woman with no kids, and I'm not having kids, so I feel really othered a lot. But then my best friend doesn't have kids either and isn't having them. And there's other people I'm friends with online who aren't having kids. So I find my sameness there. And in some ways, that's where I'm like almost the most myself because I'm not conforming to everything bigger. And I'm choosing to be part of this community because conforming is, is stressful. But then in other ways, you know, I could be a total culture changer. I could go out there every single day and I could refuse to go to baby showers and I could go on and on about how much I don't want kids and I think kids are, you know, like not my calling. And I can get really vocal and, and about it and kind of shift things up. But most days I just tell stories about my niece and nephew instead. How come? Because the having to explain why I don't want children to people who will look at me and say, oh, you'll change your mind. or Who's going to take care of you when you're old? Or aren't you going to be lonely? Kids are such good friends. To which I'm like, red flag. They're not your friends. They're your kid. Or the people that when they hear I don't want kids, assume I don't like kids, which is not true. Love kids. I was a youth worker for 15 years. I love teenagers. I'm one of the few. Love teenagers. This is not my calling. It's not my calling. And I think when I'm really open about it, to be completely honest, I think I make some people really uncomfortable because they didn't ever like think if they were going to have kids, they just like had kids. And I've had this really intentional relationship with my fertility for a long time. But I go to like women's networking events and everybody in the room is talking about their kid. It's awkward and weird and I don't like it. So I conform and I tell stories about a kid that I am comfortable with. Everyone's passing around pictures of their of their kid on their phone. I, I also don't have a dog. So like people that are like, well, here's my dog, my pet, my hamster, my, you know, cockatoo. I don't have, I don't have kids, pets or plants. I don't have anything that I keep alive. You have them in the office, don't you? Uh, yes. All of those pets are other people's. So that's the other members of my team have <laughs> various animals. We do not have any animals, John and I, my husband and I. I mean, one of the points you already mentioned, right? You conform. It feels less uncomfortable mainly to others. However, how to normalize these conversations? And I actually dislike that I call it normalize these conversations because, you know, there isn't a normal. There are just different choices that people make. And, and the other part is I was just thinking about women networking events and I um, go to them from time to time and I most of the time enjoy them. The one thing that I do not want to do is to share pictures of kids and talk about my kid and so on and so forth, because that's another part of my identity that I also want to live and explore and really nourish. And it drives me bananas if we fall into this constant conversation about, okay, what's your home life? How can you, you know, have, what do you feed him? What's his, what are his nap, time, nap times? That's another part. Yeah, let's talk about the other meaningful parts yeah. of life and again that's another shade of gray in this just this one dimension yeah of thinking and choosing and acting yeah and there are so many different shades in between yeah. deciding to have kids not being able to have kids and wanting kids not wanting them whatever it is and it drives me and I, I I'm sure you can hear that it drives me crazy 
that we are still at a point where I say, might I be making other people uncomfortable instead of, hey, how can we learn from one another with a lot of curiosity? Yeah. And I mean, what you just said is our business model. Like, I completely agree. I just know that it feels hard a lot because it feels like you have to be very brave. There's, there's, there's something in our bodies that makes feelings feel like facts. Oh, I, I, I feel ostracized by that. Okay. That's a feeling, not a fact. And there's a difference between that, but we tend to like cement in our brain that how we feel about something is the reality of the situation. And the other thing, there is something in us as humans, this is something we do as well, where the worst case scenario for a lot of us is embarrassment. So like when I was a youth worker and I would talk to talk to teenagers about something, one of the questions I would ask would be, well, what's the worst case scenario? Let's plan for the worst case scenario. I had, you know, I walked kids through coming out to their parents. I walked kids through telling their parents that they were pregnant. I walked kids through, you know, oh, I'm not going to go to the college you want me to go to. I'm going to a different one. I walked kids through how to ask their how to ask their crush to prom. You may think those last two aren't nearly as consequential. But to the kid I was talking to, they were just as important as the first two. Because they their feelings were their facts. So we just sat and talked. I'm a big believer is if you can plan for the worst case scenario, you have a plan for what would happen at that point, you can survive just about anything else. That's not necessarily true for everybody. It's true for me. And it's kind of how I counsel people. But I remember one of my, one of my students was going to come out to his, his very religiously conservative parents. And we talked the worst case scenarios, they kick him out of the house. The worst case scenarios, they've never talked to him again. So we talked about what life would look like at that point. Okay, so you're going to you're going to go and talk to your parents. What day are you going to do it? I'm going to do it on Tuesday night. Okay. So what friend are you going to have that you could go to their house that night? Because it wasn't that he was feeling like this would happen. It is a fact that some of those things might happen. It is possible. Now, his parents ended up being rock stars and they they didn't kick him out. They didn't handle that conversation well in the moment but they all work through it. They're in a great relationship with each other now. That student just got married to a lovely, lovely partner. That came out well. But like when I'm, t- but I use the same tactic when I would talk to the kid about how to ask their question from. Well, what's the worst thing that can happen? She can say no. Okay. What does that feel like? Like what, why are you so afraid of them saying no? What is in you that is so, well, that I might, I would be really embarrassed valid being embarrassed totally sucks what does that really feel like like let's dig into this they say no does that mean you go to prom alone that could be potentially very embarrassing and you could feel really weird about that okay so fundamentally you don't want to go to prom alone not a problem let's come up with another plan because we tend to believe these feelings are facts which is a human emotion a human reality it is what it is the best way I know how to fight it is with actual facts. But in the moment when you're embarrassed and you feel about two feet tall, when you're ashamed of yourself, when you're ostracized, when you are othered in the room, 
And then we can add in the other things where like, if you are a black person in some parts of America, you get shot faster. If you're a, a queer kid in Florida right now, they could take you away from your parents. Like we add in the other elements of like actual emotional and physical danger. And of course it's hard for us to tell the difference between a feeling and a fact. Of course it is. Because everything is a lot. So I completely agree with you. If we could just all be in rooms together and ask each other questions and learn from each other, my God, that's the dream. But we got all this human nonsense in us that doesn't let us do it. We've got the, we've got the feeling that we have to be among people that are like us to feel safe. That's a feeling, not a fact. But God, do we feel it to our cores? We've got feelings that there's uh, there's people to be afraid of and not individuals, but groups of people. We add our own morality onto the choices and, and lifestyles of other people. Then we begin to other people and make other people evil instead of just humans. We all do this. Biologically, we seem to do this throughout time, throughout culture. This is a human thing. So the best way to combat it is exactly what you said. How do we approach other people with curiosity? What can we learn from this person? But once again, back to our earlier conversation, that's a lot of annoying work. And sometimes I don't want to do it. And yet you do it a lot. We do. Yeah. Because what we haven't spoken about, clearly at least, is what is it you do on a day-to-day -day basis apart from having four TEDx talks in a row within eight months, one of them while you're feeling very unwell. You you mentioned your best friend a few times. You mentioned yes. empathy work a few times. So what yes. is it? All the things My you gosh, do. the most backwards podcast interview I've ever done. I love it. Um, <laughs> I keep hearing so that, the most backwards podcast. I love it. I love it. I, and this is my, this is my 92nd podcast in the last two years. I counted this morning and my favorite ones are the ones like this, where it's just like, let's have a conversation. Let's see where it goes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I do a lot of things. I will admit that I do a lot of things. I am the COO and co-owner of my family's network of companies. My brother and I co-own I think we're up to five. I lose track sometimes. Five that my father started and handed over to us uh, very intentionally and very slowly. I am still really proud of how we did the generational transition. I'm incredibly, we had bumps, we had bruises, but I'm real, real proud specifically of my dad and how he navigated handing over his third child to his other two children. And we do a lot of different things in that network of companies. Mm -hmm. The driving mission statement is to impact lives and generate holistic wealth. And our question as a family for the last 30 years has been, how do we help our employees, our customers, our stakeholders, our vendors create holistic wealth for themselves and their communities. And that's emotional, financial, psychological, physical, economic, everything, whatever wealth means. And so primarily for many years, we did that entirely through manufacturing. And uh, for instance, so we make the stains that diagnose cancer. We're the, some of the only people in the world. One of the stains, we are literally the only person in the world. And so we take that incredibly seriously. 
incredibly seriously. Um, we also do water tracing dives to make sure that, you know, if somebody goes overboard in a Coast Guard ship, they're easily found. We do a lot of stuff that, like, it doesn't occur to you that someone has to make, but somebody has to make it, like the dive for the outside of Advil. We make that. And so that was what it was for a really long time. And then I came along. And all of my postgraduate degrees are in people, um, not in chemistry or in manufacturing. And so we talked as a family about what I could do to fulfill that mission statement. And we decided that as a family that I would start my own division that did corporate training and teaching. Because in all of those 30 years before dad passed everything over to us, he never, ever laid anyone off for 30 years. Still true. And that'll be a, that'll, we've taken pay cuts as a family many times. It is part of our contact principles that we will never lay anyone off. We give everybody a bonus at the end of the year. It could be $2, but 10% of the profits go directly back to the employees. We've never had a product recall. Our turnover has been in the single digits for most of our existence. And in my dad's mind, this is just how we do business. And he didn't think it was that impressive. And I'm like, all of these things are very impressive, dad. And you're able to accomplish all of them because fundamentally you view all of our, all of the employees as people. So with simple things like my brother and I have talked about, we don't have a written maternity policy, for instance. Because if we wrote it down, it would have to be the same for absolutely everybody. So instead, we have a, I think it's called a surgical procedure policy. And which, of which childbirth is, we consider a surgical procedure. And the policy is you speak to Brian and Kristen about what the medical needs are. And we go forward from there. So bog standards, you get like, for instance, bog standard, you get six weeks for maternity leave. But like we had an employee who had a really traumatic birth experience and her doctor signed her out for six more weeks after that. Pay was a little bit complicated. We had to work through that. But like we were going to fire her in the middle of that time. Are you joking? Of course not. But if I wrote down that it was a six week policy Hmm. and you had to be back to work at the end of that. Christ, I couldn't I couldn't be flexible. So every single policy we have, every every decision we make. My mother prays for every single employee and their entire nuclear families by name every single morning. Every decision comes back to the fact that the people that work with us are people. So what do I do? I go around the world and I teach people how to do that. I talk about how to remember that the person in front of you is a person. And I finished my PhD in 2015. My hus- I married a guy from Northern Ireland. I did my PhD in Northern Ireland. And the two of us emigrated here and I started my own division of our company, teaching people how to treat people like people. Then my best friend, Erin, finished her PhD a year after me. And I was like, you know what? You're it. You're the person that works with me the best. Our brains are incredibly different, but incredibly similar. So I hired her and we've been doing this together for about six years now. And what we do every single day in a variety of ways, conversations like this. We used to have a YouTube channel. We had a podcast for a little while. We work with a lot of corporate clients now. Uh, We have a research institute in South Carolina where we work with college students. We research multi-generational workspaces, cultural foundations of burnout, reframing diversity, and being a trauma-informed leader. Those are kind of our four buckets, but it all comes back to the idea 
that if we all lived an empathetic life, we would treat people like people. Because empathy, as I mentioned already, we've done a lot of research around this, really has nothing to do with emotions. Empathy instead is a mindset of choosing to ask more questions and make less assumptions of yourself and other people. And so sometimes for that work for us, it looks like working with a, the, a college basketball team to talk about how hard it is to relate to their coaches. And other times it's working with daycare teachers to talk about how difficult it is to work with parents. I joke sometimes when people are like, what do you do for a living? I'm like, I help people get along better. But that's what we fundamentally do. That's We're cool. just trying to help folks understand that life is really hard. But it becomes a lot easier when you remember that people are people. If you were to describe your own identity, and I promise I'm getting somewhere with this question. I trust you. What, how would you describe it? Who are you in your core? In my core? It's a great question. In my core, I believe. In my core, I am a believer that people have the capacity to change. That everybody deserves inherent dignity and worth because they are a person. There are other characteristics about me. I'm a daughter and a sister. Incredible nuclear family that I am incredibly close to. Obviously, I work with my brother and my father every day. I love my husband. I love our marriage. He brought a sprawling Irish Catholic family into my world. I have friends that I consider family more than friends. I'm incredibly blessed with that. But all, like at my core, my identity is as somebody who is loved and who deeply believes that I am called to love everyone else. Loving that. And what you have just described or how you have described you is the way you describe the core of the business of the organization yeah it, it is completely aligned from my outside perspective now I do know however that you experience also challenges oh gosh and business life and family life isn't always oh roses no. and Oh no, you let's know? talk about living in lockdown with my husband. Let's talk, let's talk. Yeah, no, it's. But before we do that, let's, let's talk about being a leader of this yeah. organization, being also a female leader in this organization, for example, diversity in the board. Yeah. So, so what would you describe as some of your key challenges in your day-to-day -day work? Oofta. Um, so, you know, it, there's, I, I kind of live a bifurcated life in a certain way because Abby Research, the team is myself and my best friend and one of my other best friends. And the three of us work in a very, I, my challenges in that are never with personnel. They're always with like, how do I get leads and how do we pitch this? And how do I find this research? Like it's all, it's all not personnel stuff. It's a lot more about like, how do I, how do I take care of myself and not try to do too much? Like most of my self-care stuff is on the Abbey research side of things. On the Abbey color side of things, which is the, the parent company and the, where my physical office is most days, 
we are very intentional about hiring folks that may not be hireable in other places. Not, you know, every role, but like our kind of policy is that there's always at least a labor job, for instance, where the only qualifications you need are to show up sober every day and on time. That's it. We'll teach you everything else you have to know. We don't really run background checks. So there's definitely people that have been in the penal system. We've got folks who are in recovery. We've got definitely some folks who other organizations would say they're too old to be working and had like phased them out. And we've got some great folks in their 50s and 60s that are crushing it. And so it's a lot of different cultures and a lot of different people. And there's only like 25 of them. So it's a lot in a small, compact space. And so it's balancing how do we help the, the person in our lab who is who has this set of needs with the single mother who works in this other department who has another set of needs? How do we make sure that the customer service team has everything that they need to serve our customers, but that they're not then at absolute like fisticuffs with our production side who don't want to do what the customer service side is saying that they have to do to serve the customers. How do we find, how do we create cohesion among all of this? So that's a thing. My brother always is having trouble with supply chains right now. So he spends a lot of his time trying to find things somewhere around the world and the logistics of supply chain management. That's one of his, but the stuff that keeps me up at night and that has me puzzling through it and that he and I talk about the most when we're like hanging out with his kids is the how do we help everybody be their best selves, not the self we want them to be, not what, you know, what I have dreams of them for being, nothing like that. How do I create an environment where they are safe, physically, emotionally, financially, at all times, and they get to be themselves and feel fulfillment in that? And then how do we balance that with 24 other people that have the exact same needs and wants? And I think I was actually just talking to one of my employees about this the other day. And I said, like, would you, I said, you know, please be honest with me. And this person would be like, she doesn't pull any punches. I was just like, we spend a lot of our time trying to make sure you guys are safe. Like emotionally and physically, both, both ways. Do you feel that on the whole, on most days we accomplish that? And she said, absolutely, like, absolutely. Physically, you always make sure we're safe. We are fierce about, you know, workers' comp and OSHA regulations. And our our factory is not in the most fantastic neighborhood, especially in terms of physical and, and gun violence. And so, like, they we're very careful to walk people to their cars. We have lighting outside the building. Like, we do a lot of that kind of stuff. But she she let, it was very kind what she said, which is that, you know, you all always have your doors open. And we're in the midst of it with, we're in the midst of it with all of them. You know, the toilet needs plunging. I'm probably the one doing it. And we're very careful. Like everybody knows that Brian and I are the owners. Like that's not a secret. But there's a difference between being the owner and seeing it as a service role, which is what we do, and being the owner to have control. And in my very limited time on this earth, again, I'm only scratching 40. I've discovered that if you're super into being in control, you will not be in control at all. And if you're much more oriented towards serving the people that you are called to lead, 
much more magic happens. So that's, it's a lot of people stuff. I mean, obviously like, you know, we're in a really, we're in a healthy financial situation right now. So I don't stay up at night worrying about payroll right now. That could change tomorrow. My dad certainly did for most of my childhood as he was growing the business. That was a real issue for him. I'm really lucky in terms of like the lady thing that it's my, everybody else in leadership has known me for a long time and respects me a lot. I know that they always know that I'm a girl though. And like, there's always that like little tension of like, I believe in my core, they believe they treat me equally and they do, they pay me equally. Like I don't, you know, all of that. But then there's like little moments where I'm like, oh, you don't know that that wasn't a great, you, you don't know. Or like when I say I hung up on a customer because they called me sweetheart. And I'm like, I don't, I don't, or like, I don't do that. They think I'm overreacting, you know? And so we've got multiple generations and and some stuff like that. So like my brother understands it a little bit more because he sees it with his wife and, and he sees it, but definitely my dad will be like, you're just overreacting. Mm. And I'm like, yeah, but you've been a like white dude your whole life. Mm. And so there's just pieces of me that you don't get, but because I'm surrounded by so many white dudes. I I do get some insights into the white dude psyche, which definitely helps in sales. So I'm, I'm lucky. I have other friends. I have other definitely women friends in high leadership positions that suffer a lot more than I do. Yeah. I, I think not just, I think I've been curious about how to combine family with business. And this is a family business, obviously. And yep. given that you're, you also call yourself an empathy educator. So your world is all about empathy and spreading empathy, basically, and shifting the mindset. But not everybody is on the same path. And so nope. therefore, how to combine what you are preaching in your day-to-day work with the people you're surrounded by in your decision-making processes. You know, one of the, one of the simple ways that I'll say that we've discovered that we do a lot is we've shifted how we have disciplinary conversations. And so people sometimes when they hear about how Brian and I run things, think that we're like marshmallows that like our employees just kind of bully us around, which is absolutely not true. Like we lose our temper and we still hold people accountable. And just because we've never laid anybody off does not mean we have not fired people. We will fire your ass so fast if you come to work high, like there's still boundaries and we're still sticklers, but like one of the shifts that we made in, in taking over from my dad, my dad grew up in wall street in the eighties. And so leadership for him was, I call it pound the table leadership. You know, he would just, he would pound the table. He was the owner. People would scurry and do what he wanted to do, what he wanted them to do. Eighties and nineties. Like that was kind of how all leadership worked, right? Like that was really like the strong man kind of leadership. And it doesn't work that way now. That doesn't work at all. But we decided to start doing it. We got some wisdom from this from our, our vice president. We all just started doing disciplinary meetings by starting the meeting by asking, can you tell me what happened? We didn't walk in with the, well, you obviously failed at this and here's your punishment. Because what we realized is that understanding their process of the decision they made is an important part of what we do moving forward. So somebody who comes to us and says, 
and gives me this long, a uh, uh, detailed explanation of their thought process. And they just got to the wrong conclusion, but the thought process was in the right place. That's a real different punishment than they were out to, they were out to like intentionally harm one of their fellow employees yeah. or intentionally harm the business. Those two things could have the exact same end point, but those are two very different restitution mechanisms. So the person who had a great intentions and a terrible thought process, they're probably not going to get written up. They may, depending on how bad the outcome is, but they're going to be more in a mentoring conversation. Like, hey, let's follow up in a couple of weeks. And let's make sure that you're back on the same track. Do you see where you went wrong? The person who was like, yeah, I just really wanted to make that person suffer. Well, that person's either written up or probably fired. Because like, that's not how we do things here. Yeah. And the shift in the overall company culture, when we made that shift, massive. And we also, when we were doing some conversations around like tardiness and some other things like that, we started framing it as, I want you to work here. Here is the standard that we have all set of what it means to work here. Your current behavior is demonstrating to me that you do not want to work here. If that's true, amazing we'll we'll part ways here we wish you all the best if you do still want to work here you've got it you've got six weeks to bring it up to standard because then it puts it all back in their own control it's like you didn't as a professor i don't give you an a you earned an a i'm not giving you this job because out of the goodness of my heart you are here because you are a contributor and we want you here but if you don't want to be here, there is the door, my dear. Yeah. Welcome to unemployment. You'll be fine. So those two shifts have changed a lot for us. And so I would say, and we do that with each other too. Also, my brother and I are very good at apologizing to each other. If we like lose our temper, it'll be like a couple hours later and we'll come up and be like, so I blew that. I know. I love you. Okay. Bye. So like, we're very good at that just because we've had to be and it's intentional working with your best friend is the same way. It's a lot of communication. It's a lot of being honest and just saying like, you know, this is what I really think we should do. I'm also very, very hesitant to ever pull rank ever. So when I do, when I look at somebody and go as the boss, I'm saying this, they know I mean it and things get done quickly. And my brother's the same way. Like we're very jovial and very down to earth and, and all of that. But if one of us loses our temper, they all know like this is a real thing. Yeah. And we've built that trust and we've been able to. But so you want to know how to balance like family and, and small business and being an employee and, and empathy. You ask more questions and you make less assumptions. And if you are not interested in employing and working with people, then don't. Because if you're not in, into it, if you're not into the nitty gritty fun stuff of working with other humans, man, leadership is just not for you. I was just about to say, what's your final piece of advice that you would like to share with our <laughs> listeners? I don't think it can get any better and clearer than what you just said, but you might be up for a surprise. I don't know. Anything <laughs> else that you would add? <laughs> I would add that Everybody is doing their best and giving people the benefit of the doubt can get you a lot farther than you think it can, including yourself. I'm testing the silence with you here on a regular basis. 
Thank you. Thank you. There are two things I would like just to reflect back to the listeners because they were incredibly valuable. What you mentioned earlier on about, you know, here are our standards. And if you do want to work here, you have six weeks. It comes back to being human and letting people make their own choices and decisions and being an adult about it. The second reflection I want to summarize here and and share with people is that as leaders, a lot of leaders out there put a lot of decisions for other people onto their shoulders. I need to have everything in control. I need to do, I need to say, I need to have the final word. Everything you, Kristen, described here is a way to really focus on those human relationships, on how to get the best out of one another without necessarily adding more to your agenda. Because you do the core and you you look after the core of those relationships. Yeah. My job is to keep them safe. Their job is to make us money. Yeah. (laughs) Their job is to serve our customers. My job is to keep them safe. It just comes down to that. And it can't be more simple than that in terms of how it sounds. It isn't, as you have established. No. It's, com- it's simple but complicated, as most of the good things in life are. Kristen, before I let you get on with recovering, chilling out, packing the bag, I do know that, and getting your snack finally in, um, <laughs> let people know where they can find out more about you, the parent business, as well as all of your talks, because there are more than the four TEDx talks. There are. I have the privilege. I have, I've had the privilege of taking a lot of stages. The best place to start is our website, argooddoctors.com. You can get everywhere else from there. My talks are on there. Links to Abby Color are on there. Everywhere's there. So it's ar, Abby Research, argooddoctors.com. Thank you so, so much. And obviously, we are going to share the link as well and a few other links as well that you so kindly shared with us. And there's nothing more to say, but thank you. Thank you for being an amazing, loving human being who cares about other people and who spreads the care and love with others. And I really appreciate you taking the time to be here and to share your insights and experience with us here as well. Thank you. Well, it was an honor. Thank you so much for giving me a chance to say these things out loud. Yeah, and in an amazing manner. And thank you so much for everybody who has joined us here today and who has listened. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Share your feedback with us. What did you think about this conversation? What stuck with you? What might you want to try out going forward of all of these simple tools that are yet complex and that Kristen so kindly shared with us. Let us know. But for now, I'm wishing you all, including you, to stay safe, to be healthy, and to look after yourselves and therefore others. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Legendary Leaders podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then remember to subscribe to the show either on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, or on my website, www.kathleenmerkel.com. I would also love to hear from you to discover what topics you'd like to hear more about, what topics really resonated with you, and how you're enjoying the show in general. 
please do leave your review on iTunes as well. It would mean the world to me. Thank you so much and speak to you again next time. Bye.